0: Looms are an incredible thing because it's filled the workshop with this clattering sound, which is so vibrant, and it just gives this background to this kind of energy that happens in the workshop of this ethos of making, and Mary is very much leading that, and being able to train women again in, in this skill set, which was once very, very popular and in demand in Sri And Welcome to Better Business Founder the podcast
1: for purpose-driven business founders seeking to build a meaningful business on their own terms. I'm Liki Tank, and I'm here with you today to find out how better business founders build strong businesses that deliver value to people and to the planet. Are you ready to create change with your business? If so, let's go! This conversation is with Josie MacKenzie, the founder of AMA Sri Lanka. AMA is a social enterprise that Josie launched in 2015 in Nuwaria, a region in the middle of Sri Lanka, often known for its tea plantation and production. AMA's mission is to provide training and employment to mothers through sustainable jobs within the textile industry. Josie will explain how she landed in Sri Lanka at the tender age of 18, how this experience has impacted her choice at the university, and why she chose to focus on mothers, what problems she's trying to solve with her business, and some of the valuable lessons she learned along the way from working with mothers. But actually, the scope of AMA is much bigger than what is in its mission statement. AMA creates products using dyes that are derived from food waste and plants and using traditional weaving techniques with a strong focus on developing a regenerative textile economy in the region. AMA impacts people and the environment in many different ways. And what I find also fascinating is Josie's very creative approach when she first started her business. Josie thinks that her journey is paved with many serendipitous moments, but I personally find her incredibly resourceful and vision-driven. To me, she's a real change maker with a really strong growth mindset. I had a lot of fun in this conversation and learned a lot with Josie. So I really hope that you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Please welcome Josie McKenzie. Welcome, Josie. I'm very glad to have you here and have this conversation with you today.
0: Thanks so much. It's a total joy to be here with you and to yeah, chat more about Amma and what I do in Sri Lanka.
1: Okay. But right now you're talking from... Wales, right?
0: Yes. So at the moment, I am living in Wales um, and I've been here for the past year over COVID. Yes. As you said, you
1: have a business in Sri Lanka, but maybe we can start with what you studied at the university and why you studied what you have studied.
0: Yeah, sure. So I studied textile design at university. And so I went to Central St. Martins and was really initially super intrigued by their course because it's a very kind of hands on making course where you can either do weaving, printing or knitting. And I think before I even started, I knew that I wanted to be a weaver. And for me, there was a real excitement around learning a craft and learning a skill, which, you know, wherever I went in the world or whatever my future held, I knew that I could make and produce fabric. And for me, that was something which was really exciting and important. So I had a wonderful time. It was challenging. It really pushed me. And it was incredible to be in an environment where everyone was just kind of like really pushing the boundaries of like creativity and lots of different disciplines operating within one building I was really lucky because um, I was at the second year in the new Central St. Martin's building in Kings Cross. And so it's this incredible new building, which they had renovated an old granary building. Um, and yet yeah, all the studios, so our studio was at the end. We had the pottery studio, which you could see below us. So I could watch them doing pottery as I sat on my loom. Um, the fashion studios are kind of next door. And then the, the performing arts studios were the other side of us. So you just had this really like collaborative approach, really amazing energy. And I think that made me really excited to see how, yeah, I could use my skills and my craft in a way which kind of led me to what I was doing. I think it was a really interesting time for me because I obviously was learning a lot about textiles, a lot about the the industry a lot about the global fashion industry and the impacts that the fashion industry was having on the environment and on the workers and garment workers and people that were working for the fashion whether that was in like shops and retail stores or growing the cotton or every stage of the supply chain and i was super intrigued as to how how do i fit into that as a graduate from a textile degree and how do I be really kind of conscious and careful about the career that I want and the route that I want to take? For me, it was very obvious that I didn't want to go and sit in an office and and design digital fabrics for Topshop. And I know that there's nothing against that. And I think that's an incredible like job if that's what you like wanna do. But for me, it was, yeah, I wanted to use my hands, I wanted to do something really practical, I wanted to work with people, I wanted to be involved in the global textile industry in a really involved way which kind of eventually led to what I'm I'm doing now and I think during that time I had to dye all of my own yarns to produce my woven pieces um you didn't have to but it was kind of the cheaper way of doing it we had an incredible yarn store so we could choose what weight of yarn what fiber we wanted and then go um, across to the print studios and and dye them And the dyes that were on offer were acid-based or synthetic dyes. And as I was kind of doing this process of dyeing and looking at the containers that all had like skull and crossbones on the outside and we were using like extractor fans and you couldn't really just dispose of them down the sink. They had to be filtered. I was just questioning like, what is the consequence of this on a larger scale if there's so many regulations around me doing it for a small amount of yarn in in London, which eventually led me on to looking at natural dyes and exploring the role of natural dyes. Initially, just in my student kitchen, I was living with some really, really um, kind of patient and generous flatmates <laughs> who would come back from work and would find me in the kitchen with um, a pot of onion skins boiling away and yarn everywhere. And they were just very intrigued and and very kind to me. But, But that was kind of the start of my experiments into looking at alternative methods and ways of dying, which I have found super interesting and is still what I do now. And so over the last, I guess I graduated in 2015. So yeah, over the last like five, six years, that's kind of been the focus of my work. Um, I want to go back to
1: the traveling that you did before you started uh, St. Martin's School. Uh, You did a little bit of traveling, and so you went to different places, especially Sri
0: Lanka. So what did you notice there? I I ended up going to Sri Lanka because... I initially got rejected from doing a fashion course um, (laughs) in the UK. (laughs) So I think definitely with my story, many of the decisions that I've made and how I've ended up where I am is because of like certain failures along the route. (laughs) Um, So I was feeling a bit lost. I thought I wanted to do fashion um, and I applied to a couple of universities in the UK. You need to do an art foundation year previous before going and doing um, your degree and I was super impatient and thought that was a total waste of time. And mm. so just applied anyway and didn't get in, obviously. <laughs> um, and so my mum was just like, I think you just need to go somewhere. Like, I think originally, because I was living in Wales at that time as well. And um, she was like, why don't you just go to London? It's kind of where I grew up until I was age 10. Just get a job and and kind of find yourself or whatever. And um, And that instead of going to London and finding a job, I got in contact with a a kind of like distant family friend who was living and working for a local NGO in Sri Lanka. They were working with street kids and families providing kind of emergency relief, but also um, daycare centres and educational programmes. And I think we had one conversation. I remember I was camping at the time and my phone was off and suddenly I had this, I turned it on for five minutes and she called from Sri Lanka and I was just like, oh my goodness. And so I ended up leaving two weeks later by myself as an 18 year old. Um, I remember standing in Heathrow Airport, (laughs) totally petrified um, and getting on this aeroplane and ending up in Colombo in Sri Lanka where Mm. she met me. And I think I spent most of that time crying because I was just so overwhelmed by the <laughs> difference. I really wasn't prepared. What was the difference? I think it was just um even like stepping off the airplane and just everything hits you like the difference in language, the difference in obviously looking different and not feeling like I was feeling like I was really obvious and didn't fit in, um, noticing like the food being different and everything just being quite overwhelming and me just being very unprepared for what was before me. But she was incredible and is now one of my dearest friends and has certainly walked with me on this whole journey of starting armor. an incredibly wise woman. And I stayed with her um, for a while and then eventually moved to Kandy, which is the second city, which is where I was based for the majority of the time and where I spent a lot of time looking after babies in a church basement in the middle of the town, which was really difficult and possibly one of the most challenging things I've ever done. But during that time, I started a sewing class with a small group of teenagers, which I loved. And I really discovered... um, kind of rediscovered the power of making which I think has always been something very intrinsic to me I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was five and so very much struggled with academic subjects and making has always been my kind of way of escape and connecting both escape and connecting with the world and with um yeah myself and feeling grounded and so having this opportunity to make something with them was a really powerful thing for me. And I started to learn more about the textiles within Sri Lanka, the handloom industry and the colours. I found the colours so beautiful and vibrant and the different traditions of batik and the leather work is, and how these craftspeople were existing and surviving and how creating and craft still played such an incredibly like large role within society whereas in the UK my experience was okay I'm graduating from a degree with a skill in weaving how am I going to use that practically yeah. because the options were either to move to you know the highlands of Scotland or <laughs> or you know outside, Um, a few different mills like dotted around but really limited opportunity but going to Sri Lanka there was just this it was still something which existed which people did and it really captured my interest as to how in the UK we kind of still very much respect this idea of craftsmanship and this idea of making something and we put quite a high price on that But in Sri Lanka, it wasn't really seen as something that was that respected. And I was like, I remember looking at a weaver sitting behind a loom and I was just like, okay, if I'm going to be a weaver, if I'm going to learn how to weave, um, we have something in common, but the way that we're seen to the world in different places is very different. And I felt really challenged about that. So Sri Lanka really informed my interest in textiles. And that same year, I ended up having the opportunity to go to Burkina Faso in West Africa with an incredible woman who was working with um, really, really rural um, weavers on the edge of the Sahel Desert. And their looms were the most basic thing I've ever seen. Um, But we We had the opportunity to, you know, spin the raw cotton and watch that whole process of it being made into something. And also learn about how the opportunity for selling these products is really becoming a lot harder for these craftspeople and artisans because the rise of synthetic fabrics and the cheapness of that is really and the convenience of that is really diluting the skills of the next generation wanting to learn um, and people not being able to get a good enough price for their work. And then also the influx of secondhand clothing into these countries, which meant that actually the locals were just now picking up these secondhand branded clothing from the UK or wherever, and the locally produced textiles and clothing, there just wasn't a demand for it. And I was just really challenged and interested about all of these dynamics that come into play within an industry that I was going to go into and think about, okay, how do I exist in this industry when actually fabrics and textiles are so intrinsic to our day-to-day life? We interact with them at every stage of our day. And I don't think we really consider or think about that at all. and how ancient the process of weaving is in the crossing of threads to form something and how long that has been around and how much significance it has in our world today and that's not going to disappear it's not like you know tech is going to grow and we're not going to need clothing like we are so how do we deal with the issues that face us now and do something much better (laughs) Let's talk about the business you've
1: created in Sri Lanka. We know that it's in Sri Lanka. It's called AMA. Can you tell us what you make? Because you address so many issues in the fashion and textile industries. So, what do you make?
0: Yes. So AMA means mother in Tamil and Sinhala, the two languages spoken in Sri Lanka, and we focus on training and employing women. In the art of natural dyeing. So, we teach them how to use plants and food waste to create natural colour. And then we also train them in weaving and embroidery and different production skills. And everything happens in our workshop under one roof. And um, in a really rural town called Nurelia, which is based, it's Sri Lanka's highest town. We're up in the mountains. It's where a lot of your tea will be grown. So. Oh. Yeah so um, it's a really famous tea growing region for Ceylon tea. The leaf that's grown locally is called the orange pico and it's a very like delicate flavour and we we create a whole I guess five years, four or five years since Amma's been running and I've been working on it. It's been through a whole load of different transitions and originally we started by doing B2B and creating products for other like-minded brands, working a lot with food or wellness brands who wanted, who would use ingredients such as tea or turmeric or different plants within their products and wanted us to produce kind of either tote bags or pouches or simple products using our dyes and our fabrics for them. And so we would work on a collaborative approach with that and yeah, create really bespoke items which serve their need. More recently, we've transitioned into um, B2C, along with still doing a bit of B2B, but really looking at developing our own range of products. And so we worked with a wonderful zero waste designer this time last year and explored creating clothing a really small capsule collection of clothing which is reversible and uses our fabrics our handwoven fabrics and is zero waste and essentially looking at how we can add the most value to our fabric because that for us is our most expensive part it takes a lot of time to produce each meter and we don't want to waste any of it and we want our products to be really valued and loved and so for a while we would we were creating kind of interior items or even dining items like napkins and placemats and it kind of just broke my heart that our beautiful fabric was just being used to wipe people's mouths (laughs) (laughs) yeah so I was like I think we need to find a better use for for this fabric and so yeah this collection is a few items of clothing um Some bags and accessories, and some jewelry items, which was a really beautiful collaboration between our youngest member of the team, who is nineteen, and our oldest member of the team, who is sixty-five. And she taught the youngest how to make this cord from our naturally dyed yarn, and from that cord, one of our youngest members kind of knotted and plaited it into a really beautiful necklace and earring set, and. For me, that's really important and intrinsic to what we do. Is that we leave space and time for creativity to emerge and for different techniques to develop amongst our team. And to not just kind of. I don't see my role at all as being like a designer who tells them what to do. I think it's about how can we yeah, work together and how can like my skill set work with your skill set. Mary, who is our weaving teacher, who's been with us for just over a year, around a year and a half, she has been weaving for 30 years and has been living in our town and used to train all of the young women in in weaving before the industry really went into rapid decline in the last 10 years. And so when we found her, she wasn't working and she's come to Amma. And it has just been like the biggest joy for me to learn from her and to work alongside her and to compare my weaving notes to her weaving notes and see how they're different and also how they're the same. Um, So (laughs) over the last year and a half, since we started weaving, um, that was a whole long journey to get into that point. But it's been incredible to, yeah, just I mean, looms are an incredible thing because it's filled the workshop with this clattering sound, which is so vibrant. And it just gives this background to this kind of energy that happens in the workshop of this ethos of making. And Mary is very much leading that and being able to train women again in in this skill set, which was once very, very popular and in demand in Sri Lanka There are still some incredible brands locally who are reviving and restoring and championing Hanloom, but it has become increasingly more difficult to make it work financially.
1: Before we talk about the business part, I would like to come back to AMA, which means mother. Mm -hmm. So you are focusing on employment for mothers? Yes. And why mothers? (laughs)
0: yeah so I guess when I started Amma it was through my friend and she contacted me and was just said that there was a group of mothers living in Nurelia from tea picking communities who really wanted to work but there just wasn't many opportunities the area's got very high levels of unemployment um I mean tea picking is an incredibly tough job and it's extremely low paid and uh, there's whole complex challenges around that. And we work with an incredible NGO locally who um, specialises in that sector and works with young people. She basically told me that there was an opportunity and there's just not many chances for these mothers to find flexible employment, which can work around their other commitments We're also a very big agricultural area, so a lot of farming goes on. Basically, most of the vegetables are grown for Sri Lanka, are grown in our town. And, But again, it's day labour work, so you don't know if you're going to get work each day. People kind of stand on the edge of the street, and if the truck comes past with work, they get on it. If it doesn't, then they don't have any money that day. So for me, I kind of went into this as I was, I guess, in my early 20s, not a mother. And it was, yeah, a big learning curve. I've been very lucky to live with a lot of families throughout my life and look after a lot of children and observe lots of different mothers mothering, which I feel now has been, I guess, just part of the story and is why I love working with mothers so much. But um, but um yeah, one of the kind of big challenges locally is that many of the women, because of the lack of employment, move to the Middle East or big cities to find work. So they essentially get told that by recruiters that there is jobs abroad in the Middle East. And if they go there for a few years, they'll get paid a much better salary, and then they can come back and build a house and lift their family out of poverty in that kind of essence. But, you know, from our experience of the women that we work with and learning their stories, that's just really not the case at all. And there's incredible um, challenges with with mothers and women and, and anybody going overseas because, you know, they would work often as domestic help or in supermarkets. And we've had stories of women being held under house arrest, of, of having their passports taken off them, of not being paid, of having to lie to try and escape, and or becoming pregnant whilst there, and the incredible, oh, incredible difficulties of of the cultural views of what happens with that, and I think it also means that they leave their children with extended family or neighbours in order to do that, so the children are growing up without their mother present, and. And yet, a very vulnerable. There's really high levels of um, domestic abuse and sexual abuse on the tier estates, and huge levels of alcoholism amongst men on the tea estates. And so, you then have these two people groups in very vulnerable positions. And actually, through providing employment locally where women live, it means that they can take care of those extra responsibilities. They can earn like a decent wage, which then goes back into the local economy. When they're purchasing stuff locally, they can become primary earners within their households. They've opened bank accounts, which gives them control over how the money's spent. They save for their children. They make sure their children have go to classes and have the education that they want them to. And you just see this, all of these kind of very um, complex problems. And it's not like opening a workshop and providing employment and paying a fair wage solves it instantly. But when you like work within the local community and work with different organisations, whether it's local NGOs or we work with loads of people, even the hospitality industry where we source our onion skins from, you start to create like networks of support. And what we've found is that, yeah, this workshop environment provides a real kind of safe space for women to get out of the house Um, and when we started Amma we very much tossed around the idea of like do we do a PeaceWorks model where you know they women can work from home and do stuff in the house and then we purchase it off them and that kind of model which in some cases really works and I'm not like dissing that at all I think it has incredible flexible employment and power but for us It was the workshop is at the heart of everything. It means we can provide life skills sessions every Friday where we do everything from just like cooking together sometimes and having lunch through to sometimes having like English lessons and English classes or budgeting lessons and looking at basic accounts. There's real challenges around debt cycles in the area and the high, crazy high interest of loans, which just terrifies me. So it's looking at a much more holistic model. And I'm I'm not saying that we have everything perfect and down to a T. And it's very much like a work in progress and learning as we go. Um, and But now very much led by our local team. So our workshop manager, Mina, is a mother and really leads the organization as a mother and she will open the workshop each day and they will sit together and they will firstly get out any problems which they have and like voice that to each other and then they'll move on with their work. I think that the way that she has led it, like looking at the role of a mother as a leader within a business is actually like very revolutionary. And that is how she naturally leads. And I think it's celebrating those choices of she is leading from a place of who she is. And I think I can totally relate to actually feeling like I have to be someone who's much stronger or someone who's much kind of more competent or has a much bigger skill set in order to lead you know it's that whole like imposter syndrome thing but I've learned a lot from Mina in actually how she's just naturally just led how she is and I'm starting to try and lead much more like Mina leads for sure wow that's really inspiring
1: your organization addresses so many different issues environmental issues social issues I was uh, a bit intrigued why you decided to set up a business versus
0: an NGO. Mm. Yeah, that's a really great question. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, it was because I knew that for it to be sustainable and for it to work. Financially sustainable, right? Financially sustainable. Mm hmm We needed it to be for profit because we wanted to earn a profit because that means that what we're creating people value because they are purchasing it and they are enjoying it and they are loving it. There are enough examples of craftspeople producing things and not having a market to sell things in or not being able to earn any money. And we didn't want to replicate that. And for me, this has been the biggest challenge because I think naturally, I would feel more comfortable probably running an NGO than running a business. I've had to learn unbelievable amounts where I just had huge gaps in my skill set. I mean, I only recently learned how to do a spreadsheet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll get back to it in the next questions. (laughs) But but for me, as I started to learn more about social enterprise and actually businesses which... um, you know, reinvest a percentage or all of the profits back into the business and then back into the local community and learn more about cooperative models and fair trade. I just thought the time is is now for business to start solving some of the problems that NGOs have been holding the burden of because employment provides so many Um, solutions to a lot of the problems which NGOs are trying to tackle and the thing with an NGO right is that the NGO only exists as long as the problem they solve still exists and so you have this weird kind of like barrier of yes we want to solve the problem but when we solve the problem then we aren't needed anymore or we shift to another problem and actually I completely see the need for, I'm definitely not anti-NGO, we work with two incredible NGOs who have been very wise in how they fund us in terms of grant funding, but for a certain period of time, because we should be sustainable beyond this point. And I think that's a really interesting mindset. And I think I just find it extremely exciting that business has the power to empower and to train, and to upskill, and to pay a fair salary, and for this to be a long-term thing. And one of the biggest things I've had to work through is my idea and view of success, in that, um, actually, how can I think beyond my lifetime? Like, how can I think beyond me? How can I think much longer term than... The initial kind of five years, which I thought I'd be doing this for when I started. <laughs> um, and yeah, yes, it's really challenging because you're in this weird hybrid place of trying to solve problems whilst trying to earn money, and which is why it's taken us time and it's been slower, and we haven't scaled as quickly as other organizations have. Um, And also I'm not, me doing this role in a country which isn't my own means that it's been even more slower because for very obvious reasons like language and culture and trying to find a way of reconciling my personal life with running AMA in this context has been extremely challenging. And and I think that's certainly brought up like lots of thoughts and, and feelings around like am I the best person to do this? Um, how do I come into it? As we move forward, the success of AMA is essentially based on it not needing me anymore. So how do I, instead of become somebody who is very involved in the production and hands-on day-to-day, how does my role shift from hand, not just upskilling in textiles, but upskilling in management and accounting and business modeling and and that stuff problem solving which is what i'm starting to become really fascinated in from my standpoint
1: you've created something that will prepare your business on the road of success because it's very well structured and you managed to do it in a very short time five years is very short in I mean for this kind of business i would say <laughs> I understand that right now you're trying to see where you fit. And I thought that uh, in parallel with your textile training, you were at the same time focusing on the business part. But now you've just told me that you've just discovered Excel just recently. (laughs) (laughs) That is really amazing because I've been working for many years with students that are launching their business. And the first thing that they'll do is to, you know, to get into the rabbit hole of designing Excel spreadsheet and, you know, build the model and see how it worked before actually doing the thing, you know, creating, building the business. So I would like to understand how you did it. How did you start and how did it feel? Oh, yeah, that's that's such an interesting approach, <laughs> it
0: it was um, yeah, I'm not sure it's the approach I would recommend, but tell us, please. <laughs> <laughs> I was super naive when I started, and I came out of this. um I was so passionate about the problems which I saw and which I wanted to solve. i I feel incredibly grateful that I studied a creative degree because actually, I think it prepared me really well for entrepreneurship and starting something. Essentially, I spent three years like every month coming up with an idea and articulating it and then moving on to the next idea and articulating it and having something tangible at the end. So I knew that any approach that I have to business or whatever was not going to start behind a computer on a spreadsheet. I didn't. I just didn't actually know... Um, how to like how to do it? I didn't know that that was required, and um, <laughs> I've had to learn that there are times when it is very important. And so when when I started, we had a, a thousand pound grant, and I did need to put some numbers down. And I did have I remember my business plan. I was trying to think back. What did I actually like give to convince them to give us this initial grant to buy some sewing machines? And I think it probably consisted of a PDF with my ideas and a few photos. And I think we made this kind of short film from one of the workshops that I ran during the time. And um, and then a really basic table of absolutely unrealistic numbers, which I think that's my point, right? We, we did this table of unrealistic numbers, which were complete guesses because we hadn't started anything. And I didn't know all of the elements and so I was just like what's the point in this like we just need to get started and there was a very practical kind of scrappy approach to how it begun and on not much money at all and there's been had to be a lot of catching up to do and some of my biggest mistakes have evolved around not keeping track of the numbers and, and essentially the punishment from me not keeping track of the numbers resulted last year in me spending six weeks with a a really patient accountant (laughs) (laughs) over Zoom in lockdown and he was I honestly couldn't ask for anybody who he he was just it wasn't punishment because he made it enjoyable and fun and and although there is still a hurdle for me to Um, open up my spreadsheet it's a much smaller hurdle than it has ever been and I think I now am starting to think about the business as we grow and as we take more money I mean the money that we were taking at the start was so minutely small that um yeah it wasn't like you couldn't well you could go wrong but you couldn't go too drastically wrong but as you as we've started to like um get grants from other organizations which have been bigger and we have to report and we have to do all of that kind of stuff. I've had to really step up. And as Anna has grown, I have had to grow and it's very much been my growing up throughout the years for sure. We can
1: just move away from the Excel spreadsheet. Um, I think you build up the your organization with your innate intuition, very practical sense of doing things you know you wanted to create jobs and you need to get a grant to get the machines I guess and then start paying people how was the beginning right you got the machines you hire people and then how did you sell that's the that's yeah. a big thing how did you find the clients
0: yeah um so I think there was a lot of serendipitous moments which came into the <laughs> beginning of our mom. <laughs> and so I'm not going to take ultimate credit for them because we started very very small and and that I think was an incredibly wise thing to do now because there was a real temptation to be like oh well if we if we just bring on 10 mothers then you know that like looks great and that means that you know, we can create more things, but actually we we started with just two. And so it was two mums and me, and they were both pretty much the same age as me. And we couldn't communicate very well. They spoke Tamil, I spoke English. <laughs> Neither of us really spoke the other. And we just spent, you know, every morning. Again, we didn't start full time. So we started initially three mornings a week. And and i just started teaching them in this really damp um outbuilding in the preschool so we weren't paying any rent for the building which um you know we only lasted in for 3 months before all of our we were collecting all these avocado stones and we were laying them out to try and dry them but it was so wet that um <laughs> they were just going really moldy and it was attracting all these flies <laughs> And so we were just in this damp, tiny building covered in flies, which was getting into the dye, which was then staining the fabric. And I was like, this is awful. And so we we very quickly moved down the road, which is another ridiculous story, because um, when we when I went to see the building, it was basically a hole underneath the house um, next to like a local cafe. Or caddy, as they called. Um, and there was no door, there was no window, there was filled with oh. rubble. And they were like, This would be great. And I was like, no, this would not be great. I'm not moving here. But they kind of took my no as a yes. And so <laughs> I went, I, <laughs> we left. And then um I came back, they came back a week later and um And we're like, we, oh no, probably, it's probably like a month later. And they said, oh, we're nearly finished. And I was like, finished doing what? And they were like, finished renovating. And so they took me back and they had built a bathroom on it. They'd painted it all white. They'd cleared it out. They'd put a door in and a window. And it just was turned into like, this tiny studio which was perfect for us wow. and I'm so pleased that they interpreted my no as a yes because <laughs> I did not have the vision for that space <laughs> um but yeah I think I think starting off really small really helped and Sri Lanka at the time um again a complete serendipity um and I didn't realize it but has an incredible network of social businesses so Mm -hmm. there's an amazing organization called the good market which was quite new when we started and they are a a physical market in Colombo which creates um, and everyone has to create products who are good for the planet and good for people and it's like you get certified and vetted before you can sell there and so that's how we started selling was through the market and at the good market and we just trialed things so we would just do like a few different products and sell to locals and tourists and Mm -hmm. um, tourism was really growing in Sri Lanka I mean it was becoming the new Bali in a way like everyone wanted to go to Sri Lanka and so we got really lucky around our timing and the way that Sri Lanka was being seen in terms of the yoga community and the wellness community, incredible cafes popping up, um, not in our area, but you know, by the beaches. And, and I think there was just a, a real network of like-minded businesses that were supporting each other. So our first initial orders were for other kind of businesses on the island um, who were connected to the good market. And so we were just dyeing fabrics for different companies, a bean bag company, a company that was creating bags from rice sacks. Um, and we also started sourcing like avocados and pomegranate skins for dyeing from some really cool cafes in Colombo. And, and they kind of did a blog about us and what we were doing. And this meant that, you know, the people that were coming to their cafe were actually our target market and were learning about us through them. And so through that, we had our first big order for a Japanese cosmetics company. And that was within the first kind of six months. And that was a huge challenge for us, but it was an incredible opportunity. And so through word of mouth and Instagram, Instagram Mm. has been incredible for us. We don't even have that many followers, but the followers we do have are really engaged and committed and I think as AMA's grown people have felt really involved with it and have felt a sense of like ownership over it and um, we've been very open about the trials and the things have done wrong and things that have gone right and I think through our you know sourcing p- plants and food waste at the time in Sri Lanka this was not really being done anywhere and so we'd found a a niche in that country which kind of was ready to be filled as Sri Lanka was trying to become and be seen as much more like a sustainable travel tourism place really becoming more concerned about using metal straws instead of plastic straws and and even on that level like we related to that because of the market that we were seeking and so it was very kind of organic slow growth um but we didn't do any any marketing we didn't I mean I'm that's probably the thing I'm worst at is um is selling and so I'm very grateful that it all just yeah at the start just came to us and you know our costs were pretty low we started working with customers abroad so in australia and the uk and europe and and actually the price we could sell a product for was enough for us to be able to train and make at the same Mm -hmm. time and it got to this point until we realized that for us to be able to move into a building which could actually accommodate any serious kind of growth and start to eliminate some of the mistakes we were making around confinement by space and things we needed some like working capital And I think because of the kind of model of our business, this actually allowed us to get grants instead of go down the investment shareholder route, Mm. which has been really fantastic. Um, Mm. And it's been fantastic to see that there are organizations who are NGOs themselves, but are willing to invest like we work with an amazing organization called Trade, who are an NGO, but they also do textile recycling in the UK and sell secondhand clothing. And they use those profits to fund projects like AMA and to provide, um, yeah, like help us reach more long-term sustainability financially. I have a burning question,
1: but I think the answer will be very, very long because uh, I think that, <laughs> I think it's your, your pricing <laughs> process I mean, yeah. the, the the learning from pricing must have been incredibly interesting.
0: Mm. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that actually cracks me up because I was on a call yesterday with, <laughs> with someone who initially ordered from us when we were in our first two years. Um, and they were redoing an order for the same product. And the price, I've now doubled it. Yep. Because the price that we were charging then, I look back and I'm like, we were not making any money at all. And um and I and that was my biggest confusion at the start. I was like, we're busy making things, but we're not making any money. Like, what's <laughs> the issue? And I just sent her a text message saying, like, I'm really sorry about the price change, but I was a very bad businesswoman back then. <laughs> like there was um and so so yeah, I think also, you know, having different markets and having a presence in Sri Lanka and selling in Sri Lanka is very, very different to selling in the UK. And also me being based in Sri Lanka and living there, I really had very little concept actually of what people were willing to pay outside of Sri Lanka. So I was like, Oh no, we need to keep our prices super, super low. Like how can we keep, like how do we take the burden essentially of the cost of our product instead of thinking Okay this is the cost of our product they should be paying this cuz it's worth it and for all these reasons it's mm-hmm. worth it but that has been something that's really come into play significantly in the last year as we have looked more at our like b2c offering and when we created those products and those garments we created them based on um can we like what will the final price be at wholesale and retail and can we make that work? Um, and that's when, yeah, the spreadsheet magic came in because, yeah, mm. you do need them. You do yes. need the
1: spreadsheet. We can talk about that later on because um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, always a long discussion with the yeah with business owners. You mentioned that you. Didn't focus so much on marketing and sales, but yet you've launched a quite successful Kickstarter campaign. And um, I'm curious, how did you manage to communicate your um, intentions and the values of your brand in this campaign? Because there are so many things that could be addressed, but you decide to focus on very specific topics. So how do you manage to build that Kickstarter campaign and make it successful?
0: Yes. So the Kickstarter campaign I have to be honest we had some incredible help doing that because I think one of the things that I've learned is that when you are in something every day it's very difficult to step back and have perspective on it. So the Kickstarter campaign we originally were going to run it kind of February time, March time straight off the back of developing the collection, but then COVID hit and So our narrative actually changed. Our narrative changed into me being in the UK and then being in Sri Lanka and the challenges that we were facing, but also the opportunities that we've been able to overcome through that. So the way that we told the story was this relationship between me being here and them being there and actually the Kickstarter having this incredible opportunity to mean that we can provide salaries and become safe throughout 2021 and also allow them to continue to grow in becoming self-reliant and independent in running the organization separate from me, which was always our aim. And so when we told the story, it was focusing around the production processes because what we've really learned is that that is Amma, like that's the heart of what we do is this energy around making things and the fact that that happens in one workshop where these women come together each day to do it is the heart of who we are and so for us it was actually really like yes looking at the problems and looking at what we are overcoming through the model and what we do but trying to be really visual about um about not only sticking in the present, but also like casting the vision forward into the future and being like, actually, for quite a small amount of money, for £10,000, which in the big scheme of things and business is very small, actually, that £10,000 means that it gives us the working capital to launch something and to create something which will see us through into 2021. And it will mean that we've been incredibly lucky also to work with a business accelerator at the moment. So we're going through this whole process of actually relooking at our value proposition and our target market and the functions of how the business runs in the day to day. And it also has meant that it's bought me time in order to do that, Mm. because that's something which I don't think is really considered is that every time you go through a kind of a rethink or a, re-evaluation of where you are as a brand that takes time Mm. and that means that instead of me spending my time assisting them with production or going out and getting orders I'm thinking okay no like if we're going to be around in 10 years we need to nail this right now like this is our chance and we need to take it really seriously so the kickstarter didn't just mean that we had working cash like working capital it meant that it bought us time, it gave us some safety and security. And it's very difficult to be creative when you don't feel safe. Firstly, you need to feel safe that you can survive. And then that freedom gives you the opportunity to create and to reimagine what it is to become. Because as we go through this, and as we learn more about our customer and how they relate to us, we learn that it's much more about the mothers, it's much more about our story, it's much more about the mothers that come together the workshop and the processes and facilitating the opportunity for others to make and to find the you know the healing benefits of that through that process of using our hands from a business that you thought will last I mean
1: your involvement in this business that will only last 5 years now you say that you're working on the vision for the next 10 years so my question is How would you define success for AMA in 10 years, which means after 15 years of business?
0: Yeah. So I asked my team this in the summer. We went through a whole thing, I guess, in the midst of COVID as to, you know, is this worth it? Do we continue or do we just call it a day? And I was ready to, yeah, very honestly, I was ready to... um, really question it and to possibly step down from it until I had the conversation with them and and it wasn't a planned conversation around this we were actually interviewing them for something else and we asked what their hopes and dreams were for ama and they said that they wanted to employ hundreds of people on the tea estates and that they wanted the whole island to know about ama and that they believe in a democratic way of leading and that this is their like Mina our workshop manager she's like she's with us till she's retired like this is her vision now and there was a real change of whose vision it was and it shifted from it being like something which I had dreamt up to now something they were dreaming up and so we want to employ hundreds of women on the tea estates and I think, you know, that's where we want to get to over the next 10 years. But the way that I see us doing that is really looking at a regenerative model of textiles. And so there's some incredible organisations, Fibershed being one who's really leading this movement of looking at a new textile economy, where we think about the whole supply chain, and how we grow the fibre and how we diet naturally and how that whole circular economy of how things can eventually return back to the earth. And as I look at Amma, I just think, wow, what an opportunity to be a model of that, because we are moving into a new new workshop shortly and um, we have a plot of land. And one of our dreams was to grow a dye garden um, where we could grow the plants, which we then use to create the dyes. And And looking at how actually this could, create other avenues for employment for other people within the community, even men within the community, and and thinking like every tea picker, most tea pickers have a plot of land, well, a small garden, which they can grow vegetables, but thinking, okay, is there an opportunity for them to grow flowers and for us to buy those flowers off them and for actually AMA to facilitate an ecosystem in the area of businesses which feed into AMA whether that's like a food waste, like a food business, which we can use the waste from. And how can we invest profits to thinking about this ecosystem in that area to create an industry? Because we want to create an industry which exists there and which that area is known for, um, not just tea, um, something else. And although we have a really large garment factory in the area, which produces for people like Marks and Spencers and Victoria's Secret, which is on the brink of closure because of COVID. I'm not even sure if it may have closed and employs like a thousand women in the area. Like, how can we just be the, how can we come in a different spirit to that? How can we um, think about the whole life cycle of what we create? And I think that for me is what gets me really excited about it is seeing I think what we've learned with Alma is that you go into it with intentions of the problems that you think you're going to solve, and then you end up solving a completely different problem. And for us, that has one of those has been around mental health and has been around, you know, the real taboos around postpartum depression and, yeah, depression in general amongst women. And a big portion of the women that we employ would. Actively say that they have experienced depression or have been on medication for depression, and working in an environment where they feel safe with in the company of other women, um, and doing something practical with their hands and being respected has brought great happiness and healing to them. And for me, that's part of my story as well. And my story is that, you know, throughout running AMA, I was in a pretty controlling relationship, and AMA has, um been my avenue of overcoming and finding myself again and so it's a two-way thing right it's not just um, you know me essentially trying to help others or help them it's okay they have you know helped me as much as if not more like I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for them and so it's a very yeah it's a strong bond and I think when we think about starting businesses like AMO or social enterprises we shouldn't underestimate the community aspect of it and actually just the yeah the impact it has beyond what we presume and I think measuring that impact is a challenge essentially getting the data of that impact is a real challenge and that's often what people want to see and so the way that I think we're going more about that, Alma, is actually through story and is through being confident in sharing both the difficult and the positive.
1: What are the new products that you will be launching right now? The new developments for AMA?
0: We're not actually quite sure right now. <laughs> <We> are... <laughs> so I'm going into target market interviews this week and I think what we're super excited about is looking at this way of how can we facilitate other people to make. And for me personally, and I think for others has actually felt like there's been quite a disconnection between the products that AMA releases, even when we considered all of those elements like zero waste and all of that kind of stuff, because the energy of what we do is in so much in the process. And also we have a big, portion of what we do is around training and learning and experiences so when Sri Lanka was open for visitors we would often hold like learning workshops in our building and we'd teach people about natural dyeing and weaving and I've been doing some online workshops around natural dyeing too and we've written a dye guide about it and we're really excited about this educational part of what we do and I think what's next for us is really looking at How can we build that side of it, like both the educational and service side, but also developing the products which support that and which facilitate making through what we do. So it might not look like a a scarf or a bag. In fact, it's probably not going to look like that. I think it's going to look like something which is equally as beautiful and considered and, you know, something you could gift and pass on and do with others but something which is maybe in the form of a kit or maybe in the form of like some online learning. We're not sure how it's going to look yet, but for us, it's about looking at how we can facilitate others to experience what we experience daily at Alma, which I am always like, if we could just bottle the essence of Alma and sell it, then (laughs) we would make loads of money.
1: (laughs) (laughs) people want to connect with you and want to know about ama uh where people can find you yeah not in sri lanka of course because we cannot travel yet
0: no no so. when we can travel please come and visit i will definitely <laughs> good 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 um so at the moment you can find us on our website so it's amma sri lanka.com um, and you can email us through the website um as well we love hearing any feedback we're super keen to learn more and we're on Instagram at ama underscore Sri Lanka um, and that's probably where we're most active on social media so anything new coming up you can find it on there we've also got like some videos and things um, about our process and how we do what we do which I think are on our Instagram and also on YouTube so yeah those are kind of the best places yeah and I put the
1: details in the show notes so people can find you easily And be part of your wonderful journey. (laughs) So, Josie, thank you so much for this
0: conversation. Thank you so much for what you're doing. And thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a joy chatting to you. And yeah, I've very much enjoyed it.
1: Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Did you like this episode? If you've enjoyed listening to Better Business Founder, why don't you share this podcast with a friend that could also benefit from these conversations? You can also subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and leave a review to help other people find these conversations. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can email me at hello at betterbusinessfounder.com. Hello at betterbusinessfounder.com. And I would love to hear from you because I believe that your business is the catalyst to create the change you want to see in the world.